Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so that has this certain air of what that means to us when we think about the word heart. Except in this context, the word heart is not necessarily what we have thought it always to be. As a matter of fact, it actually is referring to how the heart thinks. The thoughts of the heart. Maybe you've heard that phrase before at some point in time in preaching or teaching somewhere, the thoughts of the heart. And so the good news version of Proverbs 4.23 that I just read to you says, be careful how you think for your life is shaped by your thoughts. And so it's referencing the thoughts of the heart. When we think about the heart, we oftentimes think of this, this beating organ in our body that pumps blood through it. We think about the one where I get all my feelers from, the one where I, I, I listen to the heart. You know, people say often, you know, just, just follow your heart and, and please don't give in to that, that theology because your heart will lead you astray. The Bible is very clear. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. So of all the things in your body, the heart is the most deceitful and wicked, yet we want to follow it on a regular basis. We want to live by what we feel. And so I've preached this before, and I'm not going to preach this today, but there, there comes a time in your life that you have to live by what you know and not what you feel. You know, it's very, it's very clear. I mean, I could, if I lived by how I feel, this is part of the problem in the world that we live in today and the world as it was when Christ was walking. People would live how they feel, which meant they were wishy-washy and they would be easily blown away with the wind because everything was based on how they feel. So how many of you woke up at any given morning in your life on a Sunday morning and just said, I don't feel like going to church today and then proceeded to not go to church because you didn't feel like going to church. So we'll go with what we feel in certain aspects of our life. Or maybe that's not as serious. Maybe, maybe more seriously, you know, I just felt like giving them a piece of my mind. I just felt like you frustrated me. You angered me enough. I need to give you a piece of my mind because that's how I feel right now. And, and, and we would make that decision, right? And then proceed to give someone a piece of our mind. So we will, based on how we feel, we will worship. Based on how we feel, we will act based on how we feel, we will sin. That's how that works. That's why the heart is deceitful and wicked. So you have to go by what you know. And what do you know? Scripture is very clear. When it comes to Jesus, he is one that sticks closer than a brother. When it comes to Jesus, he loves and forgives endlessly. He's the, he's, Jesus is the God of like 259 million chances. Yes, thank God for that. Because Lord knows I need however many days on earth I've been living, that's how many chances I need. And I'm not trying to calculate 43 years of life in the number of days, but that's how many chances I need. And I needed a whole, I needed multiple ones on a daily basis most of that time. So we have to live on what we know. And here's what we absolutely know that can blanket this entire series. John chapter 8, verse number 32, the Bible says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He did not say you will feel the truth and the truth will set you free. He said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so it trumps all these other ideas about feel and everything. So there's this sense of balance when it comes to feeling. Because I've used it. I say, you know, I really felt like the Lord prompted me to share this with you. I've said that many times. I live my life led by the Spirit of God and sometimes that leads me to say things that I believe He's called me to say. I, I, I say it because I know that he has told me, but I know that he has told me because I feel something sometimes. 
And then I oftentimes, especially face-to-face, personally preface that by saying, hey, I want to share something with you that I really feel like God told me to share with you. But if it's wrong, then my bad. That's kind of how I go. I'd rather say something that I feel like God's told me to say and then be wrong and apologize versus not saying at all and that person not getting any kind of benefit from what the Lord is trying to speak. I I remember a situation, I'll tell this story briefly. Um, Pay attention to my time here. I'll tell this story briefly. I actually was in Israel um, four years ago almost now, and I I remember we were at at the uh, base of the mountain where they believed um, uh, Elijah had called down the fire from God to burn up the water and and scatter the prophets, and he did battle. And um, and so I, I was... In that area, there's a church, there's a messianic, Christi- a Christian, a messianic Jew church at the base of that mountain. And I was in that church worshiping that morning. And there's this young lady from Mexico City on this trip. And um, I hadn't spoken to her except maybe, hi, how are you in this time? And this is like the third or fourth day of the trip. And, um, and I felt like God had said, shared something that I was supposed to say to her. And it was a little bit challenging because... Her English was a little bit more, it was broken English. She could understand, but she couldn't speak it very well. She was a younger woman, and it's kind of like this whole, this whole era of like, do I do this, do I not? So I sat down next to her, and I said, hey, listen, I just feel like there's something God told me to tell you. Um, I'm going to share it with you. If it does not resonate with your spirit, it doesn't make any kind of sense, then just ignore me. I probably had some bad Chinese food. And she laughed, and I was like, I'm being serious and so I begin to share with her what I had, and, and fortunately, in that situation, it was exactly confirming something that God had been speaking to her. But so there's times in when we function on how we feel based on what we know, if that makes sense. But we can't just always function on how we feel, because the f- feeling the truth is not going to set us free. Knowing is going to be what sets us free. And so there are some myths that have been established concerning Jesus. You heard a few of them in that in that video, I'm going to probably say some things that are going to seem controversial. They're probably going to frustrate the religious because it's part of what I do. But there's some controversy and opinions when it comes to Jesus that I just can't get myself to in a lot of ways. And so we're going to handle two very common beliefs about Jesus and speak two very common truths concerning these beliefs. The first common belief about Jesus that I believe is necessarily a myth is number one, this is in your notes, you can track along with us if you like. In your notes it says, Jesus was a good teacher. You heard them say that on the video. You hear a lot of people, even believers say such things. Unbelievers more specifically will say, well, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. They'll say some different things in this capacity, not really fully understanding Jesus. And this is a very common viewpoint. But here's what you have to understand about Jesus. You really can only make an assessment of who Jesus is based on what Jesus has said. And in Scripture, Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. The other common thing that you'll hear is, oh, well, Jesus was a prophet. You heard in that video, oh, well, he was a messenger. He never claimed to be a prophet nor a messenger, or any of those other things that he says. He couldn't just actually be a good teacher because a good teacher, understand this, this is where it's going to start, maybe get a little controversial for some, because a good teacher would not say, I am God. Think about it. If I stood up here in front of every one of you and said, I 
am God. There is no other way to heaven but through me. Some of y'all would look at me like, you stupid is what you are. And you guys think that for whatever reason, they didn't think the same thing of Jesus when he said, I am God and I am the only way to heaven. Now, if I stood in front of you and said, you know what, I, I, I'm a good person, I'm a good man, I teach the truth, and I'm a decent preacher, you guys could probably get on board with that and say, okay, yeah, that's true about who you are. But if I stood in front of you and said, I am God, some of you would change the way you feel about me. It's just truth. It's, it's, it's the reality. So, But a good teacher would not stand up and declare, I am God, especially historically in that time frame, for him to say, I am God. And so you would have to literally accept everything I say as being absolute truth if I said I am God. C.S. Lewis said this. He's a professor at Cambridge University, and, and, and he was once an agnostic. This is what he wrote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. One of the things that you heard on that video, that he was enlightened morally, right? He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he is a poached egg. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Think about those words. C.S. Lewis is regarded as one of the greatest writers in the history of the world. Some of the things that he has written and penned have been amazing. He was a great, he was actually a very good teacher. And this is what he says. That if you were to take Jesus for all the things that people are saying that he is, then he would have to be a lunatic on the same level with someone who would stand in front of you and say, hey, I am a poached egg. That's pretty crazy to suggest, right? Now, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of that. But if you think of the things that he actually said, it's crazy. He said things to people. That if you want to be a part of me, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. That's a little out there crazy. Or standing in front of people saying, I am God. There is no, I am my, the only way to heaven is through me. This Jewish man born in an obscure town to an obscure couple with all kinds of controversy behind this couple, because after all, she was pregnant with the Son of God, unmarried. So you got to think about it. When you look at somebody and you start to talk to somebody, how much of their history do you take into what they're saying? Let's be honest. We're real people, right? Somebody is sitting there, and they come from a pretty jacked-up background, and they're speaking all this high stuff. You're thinking, dude, not from where you come from, right? So that's Jesus. All the controversy of who his mother and father were, the condition of their pregnancy, the fact that he grew up a carpenter, a son of a carpenter, and himself a carpenter, is now standing in front of people saying, I am God. People thought he was nuts, or that he was a liar. But yet, the great, one of the biggest 
ideas about Jesus is that he was this good teacher who was morally enlightened. What's morally enlightening about hearing someone say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? It sounds nuts, right? Told you, I'm going to mess with some religious people's thought processes today. He's either got to be a liar, a lunatic, or the truth that Jesus is Lord and God. That's the truth. The truth that contradicts Jesus as good teacher is that he is Lord and he is God. Did he claim to be God? Yes, he did. Matthew chapter 26, 59 through 65. This is what he has spoken. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. They hated him so much, they thought he was such a lunatic and a liar that they needed to put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, here we go, eyewitness account. This man said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Who says, like, if I walked into this building and said, you know what, I can destroy this building and build it back up in three days. Thank you. Craziness. The things that he's saying just don't make any sense. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And here is Jesus' reply. I love it. He's, he's got people staring at him, looking at him like he's either a liar or he's some psychotic poached egg standing in front of them. And he says, his response is, you have said it. And in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Come on now, if somebody stood up in front of us and spoke that, we would call a paddy wagon to pick them up and take them to the hospital. Because what are you talking about sitting at the right hand of the Father coming down on the clouds of heaven? Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. You, you've certainly lost your mind. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and screamed blasphemy. Because see, in that culture, in that time, him saying that was a direct reflection of the fact of saying, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am the Messiah who was sent to save you, and I will come back again and redeem my church. And he was so distraught, he literally, when, they, when the Bible says they tore their clothing, they literally would rip their clothing in half in anger and disgust. Who, does, who tears their own clothes up in disgust? But he said, the Father and I are one. I'm setting this up for you a little bit so that you can understand a lot more of this Jesus that we claim to love. If anyone claims to be God, you've got three choices. You've got to believe he is a lunatic and doesn't know what he's saying. He's got some kind of mental instability or diminished capacity. You've got to believe he's a liar a con man, a rip-off rip artist. Matter of fact, one person said he was a great marketer, marketing because he got everybody to believe who he was. That he has to be some kind of swindler. He pretends so he can take advantage of you. Or you have to believe he's telling the truth. 
And if you believe that he's telling the truth, you have to, you're required to, you must worship and obey him. Because after all, he is God. Jesus was not a prophet or a good teacher. As a matter of fact, he refuted that specifically and directly when someone came to him and said, good teacher. He said, whoa, whoa, who are you calling good? There's no one good but the Father. So he even said himself he was not a good teacher. And so they, they come, people come to this intellectual conclusion based on reasoning that does not exist biblically. And it's just something that they have to tell themselves so they can rationalize what, they, what it is that they believe. So let's make this clear. To avoid any kind of foolish conclusions, you cannot, here we go, understand this. This is really important as far as your faith and your moving forward. You cannot accept Jesus as a great moral teacher and not accept his claim to be God. You can't. You can't separate the two. And if you claim that he is God, and you claim that you are a believer, and you claim that he is a great moral teacher, then you must follow him. You must do the things that he has asked of you to do. And so let's rubber meets the road. You must forgive people. You must walk with the hurting. You must, you must love, love on the case of action those that are broken, those that are poor, both financially and in spirit. You must serve those that no one else cares about, that the rest of the world has shunned. You have to love them. And I don't mean love them, oh, I love you. How you doing all the way back there? I love you. No, love embraces here. Face to face, chest to chest, body to body. Love, that's where love embraces. It doesn't embrace from miles away. And, and we're required to do all of those things simply because we believe that he is Lord. So that's the, very, that's the first, what I will call, myth about Jesus. The second one, and this is a very popular thought process, and actually it's becoming popular even among believers, is that number two is Jesus is one of many ways. Jesus is one of many ways. You heard that even on that video. Well, he was the son of God, just like Gandhi and Muhammad and all of us are children of God. Yes, we are all children of God. She was half right. We are all children of God, but there was only one son of God. And so we have this idea I will call the Oprah religion, simply because she's one of the most famous people I've ever heard say it, that Jesus is one of many paths to heaven. You can get to heaven going through Gandhi. You can get to heaven going through the prophet Muhammad. You can get to heaven going through Jesus. You can get to heaven going through one of the 300,000 gods that the Hindu religion produces. You can get to heaven going through Jehovah Witnesses. You can get to heaven going all these ways. Every single way, they all paths lead to heaven. That's, that's essentially what that belief is. Matter of fact, there are believers. I've actually met people in church who say that I'm a Christian and say that they believe that all paths lead to heaven. They just choose the Jesus path because it's the one they like the best. I'm like, man. So here's, here's the thing. This is what I believe, and this is going to be challenging to some of our, our theology is just because someone says they believe doesn't necessarily mean that they believe. Just because someone does things in the name of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that they are, their hearts are connected to Jesus. If it did, then Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 would make no sense when he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There are people who will confess that Jesus is Lord that won't be in heaven. What's that look like? That's kind of scary to me. I don't know about you, but that's like one of the most frightening scriptures in all of scripture for me. Because these are people that, and if you read that passage of scripture as it continues, that many will say in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did not we cast out demons and perform miraculous things in your name? And Jesus' response, depart from me for I never knew you. There's this knowledge that Jesus has of us because of our because of our being made in God's image, but there is a whole nother knowledge that Jesus has of us based on our desire to pursue him. And he's saying to people, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know you. Yeah, you may have done all these things, and since I'm not a respecter of person, you probably even saw some results. You probably even saw healed people healed. You probably even saw people raised from the dead. You probably even saw prophetic words come forth that propelled someone into their destiny, but I don't know you. I know them but I don't necessarily know you. This is the challenge to all of this faith. We love choices, and we like to choose this or that. I mean, when you get together with someone, and I've said this in other capacities, say, you know what, just give me a whole bunch of options. Let me choose from all these array of options, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly found oftentimes if you ever decide you want to remodel or redecorate a house in some way, somebody, and you hire someone to come in and help you with that. Say, so, you know, show me a whole bunch of options so I can choose what I really want. And, you know, there's some, some, some context that that's perfectly fine. There are others that it gets you in trouble. And faith is one that gets you in trouble. Jesus came along and said something that was very controversial. He said, I am the only option. I am it. I am the only avenue. I am the only path. I am the only road. You can GPS it all you want. I'm still the only way. So the truth is that combats the, uh, the myth is that Jesus is the only way. Some people think this is intolerant. Some people think it's bigoted. Some people think it's narrow-minded viewpoint. They point to other religions and say, well, they're very open-minded. Or they're very this, or they're very all these things. He says, I can't believe a thinking person like you would ever say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And my response, I've, I've been challenged with this. And they're like, well, you're so welcoming, and you're so inclusive, and you're so inviting. You're so all of these things. How can you possibly think that Jesus is the only way to heaven? That doesn't make uh, that, that's foolishness that, that, that you would think that. I said, well, you, and, and you say that. I said, well, the funny thing is I didn't say that. He'd said it. I just believe it because I also believe that he is God. So when we look at Scripture and we look at passages of Scripture like John chapter 14, verse 6, and Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. You have to rationalize that. How can he possibly say that? And it's because he is the only one, that he is God. And he is the only one who has ever done what it takes for someone to get to heaven. Uh, not to go and bash other faiths and religions. I, I equally love people, whether they are in the church or they are anywhere else. But the, he's the only one who suffered and gave himself up for us, the only one. No Hindu God has done that. The prophet Muhammad did not do that. No 
No agnostic belief has ever done that. No one has ever given themselves up for you except for Jesus. And no one else has suffered and died for people except for Jesus. And he's the only one out of all the world religions that boasts of a living God. And so there are so many things that set him apart. And so here's the truth. It's not popular that there is only one way to heaven, but it is true. And, and, and everyone will realize this at some point in their life. You, everyone on earth and ever been created will realize that there's only one way to heaven. At some point in time, they will all realize it. The question is, when will they realize it? Will it have been too late or will they have realized it in time? Because here's the truth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice what he says, that he gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus is the name above all names. That that name, every knee would bow in heaven, in heaven, and on earth, and where else? And under the earth. Every knee. There's not a single knee in the history of creation that will not bow and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. There's not a knee that will not declare it. Everyone will bow down. Even in hell, which is a very real place. It's not some subjective place. It's not Peoria. It's not any other city on this earth. There is an actual place called hell. One day everyone will acknowledge Jesus for who he is. Every nationality, every age, every culture, every religion, every politician, every rock star, every athlete, everyone will acknowledge the name of Jesus at some point in time. The issue to me isn't will you, it's when will you. And you have an option to not just acknowledge it. And I'm not just talking about simple salvation today. I'm talking about every day. I'm talking about you standing in the midst of your personal hell and struggle. Do you acknowledge that he is Lord? Because if you do, then you'll act a little differently. You'll speak a little differently. You'll think a little differently about the situation that you're in. I'm not talking about when life is good and everything is cool and I show up to church in my cute little outfit. I'm talking when I'm down and knee deep in dirt and I'm muddy as all get out all over my face and all over my hands and I can't stand. I have, I'm stuck in my, on my knees in the middle of this crap that I'm going through. Is, is he Lord then? Or is he only Lord on Sunday when you can look cute? Is he only Lord on Sunday when you get to put on your nice suit? That's the question. Now, I'm not talking about simple salvation. This kind of crowd, this small crowd that I have in this place right now, I, I might go on a limb and say, I believe most of you, if not all of you, are probably saved. So I'm not talking about simple salvation. I'm talking about day-to-day -day life, walking it out. When you get the report, like a very close and personal friend of mine has recently received, that there's nothing else they can do for the, the disease that ails them. That we're just going to try to have to figure out how to slow it down and keep it from progressing. When you get that kind of report, is he Lord then? 
or when you're faced with one of your children being sick or you're faced with your parents dying or you're faced with any number of other issues, financial issues, when you look at the end of the month and you have no money but you still have bills due or you don't have a job, is he Lord then? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about today, right now. He's Lord for everybody on Sunday morning. Just look at churches all around the world. They're full of people like this on Sunday. But on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, by Friday, hands are in their pocket and the club comes at the club now. That's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about simple salvation. I'm talking, is he the true Lord of your life? If he is, then you will embrace one another. You'll embrace other people. You'll love people that God, that other people have said of unlovable. In Jesus' day, many figured it out too late. Romans, uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 54. This is the account of a Roman officer. This is a Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. Don't find yourself in a place where you acknowledge it too late. Don't be a lukewarm believer today because that's very clear. God said, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't know about you, but I, I, when I think about that, I think about one thing. I think about, I like coffee. I'm a coffee fanatic, somewhat of a coffee snob in some ways. Someone, I mean, I'll, I'll drink a Maxwell House if I'm offered it, but it's because I'm nice. But I'll tell you right now, deep down inside, I'm like, this isn't coffee. This is mud. This is dirt. I go out in my, my front yard, dig up dirt underneath my grass, brew it, and it's the same thing. I told you I'm a snob when it comes to coffee. But I think about that hot cup of coffee that I like, and it sits and it sits and sits and sits too long, and then I go to take a drink, and it's not hot, not cold. It's like that middle. I spit it back in my cup, and I throw it away because it's just lukewarm coffee is just nasty. It's like lukewarm soda. It's like these things are just not okay. I'll drink it cold. And I'll drink it hot, but don't give me anything in between. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't get in between. I'd rather you be ice cold or, or than, than, than lukewarm because lukewarm just doesn't taste good to me. Ice cold means I still can reach you. On fire means, oh, let's go. We can win the world for my cause. Lukewarm, though, I can't do anything with you. Let me spit you out of my mouth. I don't want it. There's a lot of believers sitting in church today around the world that are lukewarm. A lot. A lot more than I'm comfortable with saying. So we look at these two myths, that Jesus was a good teacher. He never claimed to be that. Maybe some of the things he taught were very good along the path, but he never claimed to be a good teacher. He claimed to be God. And myth two, that there are many ways to heaven, but there's really only one. And Jesus said, I am the only way to God. So now you have some options. What do we do with this information now? And I'm not, again, take it out of your mind that I'm talking about basic Salvation, although there's nothing basic about salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your everyday life. So let me give you some advice on how to, how to respond to this message today. And it's not just in how you're going to respond in the next 10 minutes. It's how you're going to respond in the next 10 years. 
Number one, you got to settle his claims. You've got to understand the claims of Jesus, and you've got to settle his claims. The first step to experiencing this is to receive it by faith and make a choice. Not just, yes, you must make that choice initially, but every single day, settle the claims of Jesus and make a choice. Because I, I guarantee all of us in some capacity have, currently have, or will have what I will call a thorn in the flesh moment or a thorn in the flesh life. That this thing is stuck in my flesh. It's bothering me. God, get rid of it. Oh, I hear you. Nothing's gone. But God is digging in deep and get rid of it. It hurts. It's still there. But seriously, now it's oozing, God. There's blood coming out. It's oozing. It's infected. It's killing me. You got to get rid of it. He did this over and over and over again. And the response of God was simply this. Man, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. That what you're going through, my grace is all you need. Yeah, it hurts. I get that. But it's my, my grace is all you need. It's something interesting about what happens in life when we focus on him versus the struggle that we have in our life. When we focus on the pain, guess what the pain does? It hurts more. When we focus on something other than the pain, even for a few moments, we forget about the pain. We forget about what we're facing because our focus isn't on that. Matter of fact, there's an amazing preacher out there who, who was telling a story about his daughter, and his name is Linda Ravenhill. And he, he, he spoke on this idea of how you think being connected to how you feel. And he said, as told a story of his daughter coming to him and saying, Dad, my head really, really hurts. Like, I, I have to keep my eyes closed because with them open, any light's causing my head to hurt. And he told his daughter, well, don't say that your head hurts. And she said, well, what should I say? He said, say, I believe that I am healed. And so she said, as, as a child would, okay, Dad, I believe that I'm healed, but my head still hurts. You know, it's a statement of two realities. They're both very real. The reality is you are healed. Why? Because the Bible says very clearly that by the stripes of Jesus Christ, we are healed. We are made whole. But the other reality is, yeah, my head still hurts. One of them is going to win. One of them is going to win out. Whichever one you focus on the most is going to win out. If you want to focus on being tired, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be tired. I have, people, I have people all the time, they, they say things to me, and, I'm not, I'm not, and I, by no means am I boasting because I've got a lot of issues that I'm working through in my life, but one of them that I, I don't have to work through is if you encounter me at any given time in my life, I don't care whether I'm at work at Chick-fil-A, I'm at a coffee shop working in a church, I'm counseling with somebody, I'm in the middle of a knockdown, drag-out fight with my wife. Yes, my wife and I have those from time to time. It doesn't matter where you encounter me, you know what you're going to encounter? You're going to encounter a smile. You're going to encounter a happy person. And not because what I'm going through makes me happy, but because I decide to focus on Jesus and focus on the fact that he loves me, which brings a smile to my face every single time I think about it. And that wins out. Drives people around me nuts sometimes. They want to see me react. They want to see me fly off the handle. Like, no, you don't. I promise you. It's ugly. It's ugly when I fly off the handle. There's a few people around my life that unfortunately have seen it. 
But it's ugly when I fly off the handle. I don't want any of that. I don't need that. So what do I focus on? I focus on Jesus. He loves me. That makes me smile. I focus on the fact that, oh, yeah, I screwed up yesterday, but you, Jesus, you love me. I focus on that. Oh, my life around me is torn apart. I got no money. I'm hurting in my body. I've got issues in my feet. I got issues in my wallet. I got issues with my children. I got issues with my parents. Oh, but Jesus, you love me. It brings a smile to my face every single time. It's the statement of two realities. Everything I just said is true and real, but so is the fact that Jesus loves me. And so my focus is that. And because that's my focus, that's all that I see. And it, it, it bothers some folks. There are people at work who say, you can't possibly be like this all the time. I said, yeah, come see me. Come to church on a Sunday. I'll be the same way. Even a little bit more undignified because there I got to act a certain way. At church, I don't need to act that way. At home, I don't need to act that way. On the street, I don't need to act that way. On the basketball court, I don't need to act that way. It's just, it's just a, set, a settling of his claims. I settle the fact that Jesus didn't leave but one option, that he is God and he is the only way. And if I try to think of anything else, I'm going to drive myself crazy. Matthew chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, Jesus and his disciples, they left Galilee. They went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As, and as they were walking along, he asked them, ready for this? This is it. This is what the world is wrestling with right now. They asked him, who do people say that I am? He had his own little word on the street moment with his disciples. Well, who do people say that I am? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? The only question that matters in life is who do you say that he is? And Peter, in all of his excitement and exuberance, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's that truth right there that establishes everything in life. It is that truth that established the church. It's that truth that established the word of God. It's that truth that has established the very foundation that you find yourself on spiritually. It's the truth of Jesus is the Lord of our lives, that he is the Messiah. We forget that the moment something happens, the moment something presses against us, we forget that. The moment our relationship with our spouse begins to deteriorate, we forget that he was Lord, that he is Lord and that he loves us. Because the reality is if we remember that he is Lord and that he loves us, we will respond differently to people. We'll respond differently to their situation. We'll respond differently in our relationships. We'll respond differently to our children. But that's an everyday occurrence. So you have to settle his claims. Let me move on quickly. Yes. Number two, you have to experience his power. You have to experience his power. Let me tell you something. An argument will never convince anyone that he is Lord. An argument with anyone, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, no argument will ever convince that he is, that he is Lord. Not one. God never intended it to be that way. The Bible's very clear. Signs would confirm his word because you can always argue someone's viewpoint. You want to have a good argument? Come tell, talk to me about it. Just say, hey, you know what? I'd love to argue this with you. Let's get it on. I'm stubborn and I can argue. Ask Nate. You don't want to do it. 
Nate and I have had a couple over the years that we've known each other, going on six. We've had a few. You don't want to argue with him neither, okay? Don't, don't, let it, don't get it twisted. It's just this way. So you can always argue someone's viewpoint. It can be argued all day long with whatever you want to believe, but here's what cannot be argued. The changed life cannot be argued. I can stand in front of you and, de- and declare all the things I want about the Bible and what I believe it says, but you know what? Let me tell you who I was, and, le- and, le- and I'll let you look to see who I am. I don't need to tell you who I am. I can tell you who I was because none of y'all were around to see that and thank God for that. You weren't around to see me getting high and getting drunk and partying like crazy. You weren't around seeing me disrespect my parents and disrespect my grandparents and tell everybody in the world, I run this place. Yes, I was that 16-year-old that told my whole house, I run this place. Yeah, you weren't around to see all that, and you should be thankful for it because none of y'all would like me. That's why anybody from back in my high school days and my military days that would see me as pastor, they're like, nah. No way. You're way too far gone for that. So you can argue a viewpoint, but you can't argue a changed life. So all I ever talk about is the power of God and how he's changed life. Paul was the skeptic. Until he met Jesus face to face, Paul was the skeptic. Then he based his entire ministry on what? Experiencing the power of God. His entire, the, power, the entire ministry of Paul, read every book that he's ever written, you will find he has, there's one declarative statement made in every book, and it's always referencing the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the face-to-face encounter of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in the message version, I just like the way it sounds. He says, you'll remember friends, and when I first came to you, to let you in on God's master stroke, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate as I was scared, I was scared to death if you want the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it. Which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. I love the way he says it very simply. I did not come in with any kind of anything. I came with a demonstration of the spirit's power. And what's the demonstration? See, here's what's happened in the church today. The church today is full of pulpits and people in the pulpits who want to demonstrate the Spirit's power and how it manifests through them. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says, I've come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And what's the Spirit's power? My changed life. I don't care what anybody says, all the miracles that have taken place from people being raised from the dead to blind eyes being opened to people healed of cancer today, still the greatest miracle in the history of the world is the changed heart. Bottom line, that's what Paul's saying when he says, I come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I didn't come speaking in tongues. I didn't come prophesying. I didn't come saying, oh, well, you don't speak a million tongues like I do. No, he says, I came to tell you, I used to kill Christians and now I love Jesus. The demonstration of the Spirit's power is a changed heart. Anyone can make claims to Jesus, but Jesus changes lives. Someone who truly has Jesus has a changed life. Someone who truly has Jesus has a changed heart. They have a changed perspective. 
And here's what I've discovered. People are only skeptical about the claims of the Bible when they try to understand it with their own minds. That's when they become skeptical. So my invitation to you is experience his power to change your life. And I'm not, again, talking about that moment that you declared that he is Lord. I'm talking about that moment five minutes ago when you were sitting here doubting that Jesus loves you because I said it. That's the moment I'm talking about. I'm talking about the moment that's going to take place 20 minutes after you leave this place, doubting that Jesus is speaking to you. That's the moment I'm talking about. We need to have this God encounter every single day. That's why I love, can I tell you, that is why I love things like youth camps for teenagers. To unplug them for seven days or five days from the crap world that we live in and the social media that they boast on, to unplug them from that and consume them with nothing but God and the presence of God for a week It's just really simply doing one thing. It's establishing a foundation. Yes, because some of them come back and they're not on fire anymore 10, 6, 7 7 months later. But you're forgetting the fact that you're expecting something to happen that maybe was never intended to happen. But they just needed to have this encounter with Jesus that changed their life. And here's why I know that, because I've been a youth pastor for years, and I've taken many kids to youth camp. It is the one thing that I would stand on and say, if you don't go and you don't send your teen, you, 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 there's some challenges to that. that I, I, that's a whole nother time, another conversation. But here's what I found with my own child. She was just away at camp for a week. The praise report on what God is doing in her life is really simply, most of you know she's a type 1 diabetic. She has been since she's 10. She's insulin dependent for every single day of her life and every single meal. There is no reason for it. There is no diagnosis that suggests this is why this happens in kids because one does not exist, which is why it's so difficult to cure because they have no, no reason why it takes place. It just happens. And it happened to my child. And it was the worst day up until that point in my life that happened. Let me tell you what that same child, she started her journey out with injection needles sticking in her, sticking them in her legs saying, I am healed. I am healed. The faith of a child is beautiful. I am healed. That's what she kept saying. Then, of course, she gets into her teenage years. We don't need to discuss those. We're still living them. But then she's at this camp, and she, she, she tells us definitively, Dad, I'm healed. Like, it's not even like an argument to her. Don't be talking to me about this. I'm healed. I'm like, well, you need to, no, I'm healed. I'm like, oh boy. I know that sound. I know that voice. I know that stubbornness all too well. And so then we found one specific day when her blood sugar was higher than it should be and said to her, well, what did you do? And this is the moment that I knew that God did something in her life when, in that place. He says, well, first thing I did was pray and tell the devil that he's a liar. And then I took a correction of insulin. So while even in the midst of the fact that she still has to do this, even if it's just a little bit, it's not exactly how she wants it to be. She took the time out to say the devil is a liar and that the Lord is my shepherd and he is my savior and he's the one who's healed me and now let me fix this on the earth because as you know, the natural body takes some time to catch up to the supernatural. It's the way that works. So even if you don't necessarily see it or you don't feel it, you got to what? Know it. And she knows it. She knows it to the point that I'll say this. She's not taken insulin for a meal since camp started. 
Last year, we had to go to camp and pick her up and take her to the hospital. She was taken to the hospital. We had to take her to the hospital last year, and she spent a day and a half, almost two days in the hospital because of this, because we couldn't get it regulated. This year, she doesn't even, and last year, we had a whole bunch of issues with my teenage daughter then. Her and Jesus, they weren't really close. I'll just say it like that. She'll tell you to. This year, she goes, and it's a different person, different mindset, doesn't take any insulin, yet still I'm healed. Dad, I'm healed. My kids come back. My son and my oldest daughter come back saying things like, oh, I feel like God's called me to preach. My son, dad, God, God's called me to preach. I'm like, Whew. My daughter comes back and says, God's called me to the mission field. I'm like, come on. These are the things that they are invaluable that are part of the power of experiencing God. That's what it's about. It's just experiencing God on a way that changes your life. Worship team, come and get set. I got to finish. I can preach this forever. And I'm not too far from forever. Don't lie. Nobody can listen to me forever. <laughs> I appreciate that, though. It's hot in here. I just, is it hot in here or am I just preaching hard? What are you trying to say? Anyway. Shh. Let's get back to this really quick. I'm going to wrap this up right now. And this is not a Pentecostal wrap-up. I don't have 20 minutes left. So in our lives and in this journey called life, my spiritual father and one of the greatest men of God I've ever known, many of you have had the opportunity to meet him. Some of you have not. His name is Gary Grogan. And he's the whole reason why I even planted a church. He saw something in me that nobody else saw. But he says to me all the time, even this morning, six years into this process, he still texts me most mornings, Sunday mornings, saying, I love you. Enjoy the journey. That's all he says to me. He doesn't ask me, how is the journey? Because he knows how the journey is. But he says, enjoy the journey. But you can only enjoy this journey called life. When you've experienced his power every day. Not December 19th, 1998 for me was the first moment I experienced it. I'm talking July, what's today, 15th? July 15th, 2018. Tomorrow, July 16th, 2018. You get the picture? Every day. The only way you can possibly enjoy the journey is if you are having encounters with God every day. And that is not up to him. That is up to you. He very simply said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. If you never seek and you never knock, you will never encounter. 